0: How many in here are introverts in the room? You know, hey, I'm an introvert versus an extrovert. Now, you know, how many of you, the introverts, you just don't get a lot of energy about being around people. You're kind of that loner. You love kind of just you, you love people. It doesn't mean you don't love people, but you don't like getting into social situations. That's not your cup of tea. How many are introverts in this room? Let me see your hands. Introverts all over the room. See, you're scared to even raise your hand. How many of you are extroverts? Raise your hands. Now, you're you're quick. In fact, you want to come up and give my talk. You're, you're ready to do it for me, okay? But the population's kind of split there. And they've been measured for years and years by the Myers-Briggs. It's 54% versus 46% of us. Now, there's an interesting aspect. The introverts, they need help starting the conversations. But when they do, they don't have any difficulty shifting to something meaningful. Now, I will confess, I'm an introvert. Okay, I'm I'm on a scale of zero to 100. I'm a seven. Okay, Um, you know, with 50 to 100 being the extrovert, zero to uh, 50 being the introvert. I'm a seven on that scale. When we talk, we want to manage our words. If we're going to share, we're just going to get straight to the bottom line. Now, that can be good and that can be bad. When our kids walk in the house, sometimes that bottom line is you didn't do your chores. You didn't clean the table. You didn't make your bed. All of a sudden, all our teens are hearing from us are corrective areas. And they need to hear more. Now, extroverts, you guys have no, no difficulty finding words. Believe you me, we are worn out by all your words, okay? So you find the words. The problem is you don't know how to make the leap over to having a faith conversation when you're speaking those words. You've got to make the transitions at some points to have a biblical conversation with your son or with your daughter. The Bible is filled with admonition over this. I I, I wish you'd take your cell phone and just snap a picture of all of these passages because I want you to read them later in their entire context. I will walk you through them very, very briefly here. But James talks about the influence of speech and the power of the tongue. And that tongue, he says, is like a rudder of a ship. can steer it in all different directions. How many times in our home has a single phrase been uttered or a sentence been spoken that totally alters the mood of the moment? The Bible is very powerful in conversation. Proverbs 17 says that we're to reduce our negativity when we speak. Our negativity can wear down our children. Colossians talks about our speech should be full of grace, seasoned with salt, something that flavors appropriately. But it also can preserve. Our speech should help preserve and admonish and challenge our kids to walk the right path. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us to build up one another. And that one another we forget also includes our kids. We tend to think the one another's only means other believers. But it's also a generational command. Proverbs 15 says that we're to de-escalate, take the tone down. So many times... (laughs) Somebody lobs a grenade in, and we have to pick up and lob a bomb in. And then they throw back an atomic bomb, and this thing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our conversations. The Bible was very, very clear, and this is just a handful of the Scriptures that we have. God the Father modeled conversations when He created the earth in six days, and He came down, and He began to walk among His creation. He loved conversation with Adam and Eve. And we get that sense that that was a special time up until the fall. And that relationship changed slightly there. But even later, we find in the post-fall with Enoch, him walking with God, and it says he was not. God took him. He had this close walk and conversation with God. And then Elijah, he heard the still small voice of God. Our Heavenly Father, He desires conversation with us. But we're very busy. We don't have it with him. We don't spend as much time in the Word and in prayer. But likewise, we should desire conversation with our kids. And I want to share with you how we can have meaningful conversations with our kids today. I'm going to give you a formula. And uh, it's meant to give you a formula that's somewhat easy to remember. And in doing so, uh, I hope that you can kind of take and implement this in everyday life. And so I wanna point out a couple of items about uh, about the formula. First of all, the one on the left, the ingredients, whichever screen you're looking at, you can see are talk bubbles. The one on the right is what you're gonna be thinking about. And we'll throw a, a think level up there in just a bit. So the ingredients on the left are talk. That's the easy way to remember it, T-A-L-K. And each one of those letters form an acrostic in order to give you a reminder of what goes into our conversations. And the thoughts we're having on the right is Abe, as you probably guessed, based on the profile of Abraham Lincoln. So let's jump into the talk portion. Number one, topics. I'm going to give you just, again, today is meant to be so practical. And I know this isn't the normal formula for Sunday school, per se, where we would just dive in deep and go verse by verse. But my goal is to give you some practical how-tos for the message that we're going to share. So... This is topics. This is topics. When you go and by the way, for all of us introverts, you probably play the same game I do. When I'm going to be around other people, I plan ahead certain topics I want to talk about. I need to. Now if you're an extrovert, that sounds so foreign to you, because you can just come up with anything to talk about it at the spur of the moment. The rest of us, we need to think it through. Now, you know, when I'm going to see somebody I don't know, I try to figure out as much about them. And I'll figure out three or four questions I can ask. And and so I'll come up with those. Now, for our kids, one of the games that my wife and I would play is the high-low game or mad-sad-glad. And when they get in the car at the end of school and we're on the way home or we're seeing them after school, we say, hey, what was the high part of your day? Or what was the low part of your day? What was the best or worst? Same Same kind of thing. And we want to hear. And, and when we get a chance to debrief, now we get a chance to get in their head in order for them to understand that we care about their daily happenings. And when they start telling us about their day, they're going to ultimately bump into something they either liked or they disliked. Now, when we have the light like portion, usually that's no big deal unless they're liking something they shouldn't like. But generally, that's not going to be the problem. But their worst part of the day, their bad part of their day, is going to immediately open up the opportunity for us to take Scripture and typically apply it to whatever their pain point was. In other words, hey, Mom, Dad, the coach benched me. Why'd they bench you? I had a bad attitude. Or, you know, and they'll begin to reveal the reason. And that reason then becomes a coachable moment for us to pick up Scripture and just share how we should conduct ourselves, what we should do. And so the high-low game is just that fun area. Now, we again, I want to emphasize, don't go looking for sermons to preach to your kids. It's just a short word. Hey, well, you, you know from our, our sermon that we heard the pastor say the other day, he said we should do X. And then let it go. Or bring back up the Sunday school lesson. Or where you are reading devotionally. God will use scripture when you're in it regularly to become part of your conversation. But if you're not in the Bible regularly, that will not be part of what he prompts you to use. And it will be opinion based. That means we're teaching our kids a worldview, but not a biblical worldview. We've got to teach a biblical worldview. So the high, low, the mad, glad, sad. Mad is what made you mad? What made you sad? What made you glad? Reason being is, we want to ask about their emotions so that we can help, because kids are not, we'll get into this a little bit later, their brains are not fully cognitively developed until age 25. Therefore, they're primarily responding to emotion. And you and I all know we do not make decisions based upon emotion. If we made decisions based upon emotion, all adults would fall into sin after sin after sin after sin. And we don't make decisions based upon emotion. We base it upon cognition and knowledge of Scripture. And so we've got to coach our kids on those emotional reactions and bring them back to cognitive results. That's our goal. That's why we have this. Now, the A is for asking questions. I mentioned this a moment ago. We have the tennis ball game. And, uh, you know, when we play the tennis ball game in our family, we literally did pull out a tennis ball when they were probably five and six years old. And what, what it would often look like is this. Uh, Brother Christian, can you come up here? Do you mind? I, I'm going to... Uh, I'm gonna borrow this bottle of water, okay? This is gonna be our tennis ball. The reason why we use the tennis ball is our, none of our people in our family, none of our family members play tennis. So when the tennis ball came out, they knew we were about to play the tennis ball game. Now the tennis ball game works like this. We use the tennis ball to play high, low, mad, glad, sad. And so when the tennis ball came out when our kids were age four and five, we'd say, hey, what was the best part of your day? Now they would answer That question, but in order to toss the tennis ball back, they had to ask us a question. So you would answer and say, "What what was the best part of your day?" My day. Yes, sir. What was the best part of your day today? Uh, Being here with y'all. Excellent. And not (laughs) with my wife. what (laughs) What did he do wrong? Didn't ask a question. So I give it back. And exactly like he did. We didn't rehearse this. But when you come up here and you're not knowing, you're a little nervous. This is exactly like it's going to be with your kids. And so you say, but you got to ask a question. So he would then ask me a question. Cool. (laughs) Playing tennis ball with Christian Powell. That was my best part of my day. What made you? And we would begin to go back and forth. And here's the deal. Once we play this game for about two or three weeks... The tennis ball can go away and the game can continue for life. To this day, when we see our kids, we start into, hey, what was the high part of your, your week? I, I have that with my son. We talk two or three times a week. He's grown. He's been married three and a half years. We still play the tennis ball game, although we don't call it the tennis ball game. He asks me questions. I ask him questions. We kind of debrief. And what it allows us to do is get into a a meaningful area because we're going to land on something. Oh, you're working on this project. Tell me about it. And all of a sudden, we'll chase that for a while. But it has a conversation. There are so many kids growing up today that they are spending all of their time in this device and conversations. And we're teaching them how to have eye-to-eye conversations. Although, I will say, the tennis ball game works here as well. It'll work both places. But we got to teach our kids the art of conversation and how to have that conversation. Thank you, brother. So we will probably have kids that are introverts like myself. Therefore, our son, um, our our kids were 15 months apart. And my son, my wife and I say is the king of one word answers. Absolutely the king. We ask him whatever questions. We could ask the most open-ended question You know, what was the best part of your day? Lunch. You know, what was the worst part? Math. You know, and uh, I mean, no matter how much, tell me about it. Boring. It was boring. You know, I mean, does anybody have a child like that that can relate? I mean, I'm seeing nods all over the building. Well, here's some ways to get past those one word answers. Okay. You have to ask these follow ups. What made it bad? What made it good? Tell me more. And when you ask these, be quiet. Tell me more. And if you sit there quietly, they will feel bad for you and fill in the silence. Okay, eventually. What What do you mean by that? What do you think caused it? Help me understand that. Now, what am I doing here by asking these follow-up questions? I'm causing my child to think differently. I'm causing them to think deeper. Let's say, hey, what was the most interesting part of your day? There was a fight at school. What, what, do you, what do you think caused it? Now they can start analyzing. I'm teaching them how to think cognitively. I'm starting to teach them then to go, hold it. Did somebody's own bad judgment get in the way? Did their temper get in the way? Did their pride get in the way? And now I can use scripture to help them think it through. And then we can ask that, you know, what do you think should have happened? Now we teach them the replay, how it could have a different outcome. These are the kind of questions that help guide our our kids into a much better way. Understand this, conversation is not one way. Teach your kids to talk, and when they talk, you listen. Now let me hasten to say, listening is not formulating your answer to quickly refute whatever they're talking about. Listening is truly taking in what they're saying and trying to digest it. Teach them to listen by your listening. Our son came home from his freshman year of college and he said, Dad, I think we want, I, I want to talk to you and Mom about transferring colleges. He was studying engineering. And we'd worked hard to get him into the engineering school that he was in. We were very proud of where he was but he said, Dad, he said, and here's his reasons. He said, and remember, my son's an introvert. I'm an introvert. So he's laying out the, the rationale. He said, Dad, he said, the teachers at the school I'm going to, they know that they've got an application list a mile long. And if we drop out, somebody's there to replace us. They're not going to miss our tuition. He said, it's really hard. They're willing to keep going. They don't stop and help you keep up. If you have problems, they they just, they're like a machine. And he said, if I can transfer to the school right here across, if fr- across town from us, then I can live at home, save room and board, and I'll be close to my girlfriend that I date at church. Now, which one of those clues do you think I zeroed in on? Yeah, the very last one. And I must admit, I did not respond the way I would like for you to respond. Because I very quickly jumped in and said, son, we don't make lifelong decisions based on a girl you're dating. And I gave him a sermon. And it was not pretty. I was right, but it wasn't pretty. But I could quickly tell my son was shutting down like you see your kids shut down. They're there in the moment, but they're not listening anymore. Thank goodness I had the good enough sense to say, son, this doesn't sound like a conversation we should have in one setting. We may need to have two or three conversations about it. Why don't we give this a pause? Let's bring your mom into it tomorrow night and let's pick it back up and talk again. Because I've learned that when we have disagreements with our kids, it's not about winning the argument. It's about helping to get them to see what's the right way. Even when I've got to back off for a minute. We have a saying inside Randall House, when we get into meetings, we don't seek to be right, we seek what is right. And I needed to seek what is right with my son that day, and I said, let's sleep on it. So I'm laying in bed with my wife debriefing, kind of like we do for the day, and I'm telling her, and she's like, yep, you went too far with him, didn't you? And I'm like, thank you, prophet. <laughs> How many of you married a prophet that you know puts you into that light? My wife is that way, she's been, she's been incredible. And I said, well, let's talk tomorrow night with him. And and we got together. And I realized it took a lot for my son to lay out that case. That was not part of him. And we wound up helping him transfer schools. And I believe that me pausing and hearing my son kept him in his profession that he feels God has called him to be. Otherwise, had I pressed hard to keep him in the school, he probably would have dropped out of his major, had to change majors and be in something different. I don't know. But he is so joyful. He now, you know, he, he's serving God. He's in the church. He's, he's doing mission trips. He's, I mean, he's where he wants to be. But sometimes our tongue can be the rudder to totally shift in a life altering direction. But we've got to pause and listen and be cautious. Now we go to K. Kudos. Do not underestimate the power of affirming your kids. Let them hear 60 to 80% of who they are rather than what they have done. As parents, it's all about you didn't take out the garbage, you didn't do your homework, let's look at your grades. We measure them by their performance when at times God says we need to cultivate their character. We need to look at our kids and say, I love how kind you are. Now there you have to may have picked those moments carefully because you may not see a lot of kindness, but when you see it, you jump on it and compliment it. Maybe you show them That verbiage, this is, I saw where you were selfless today. I love how you were compassionate. I heard what you did in class. And by the way, if you are a Sunday school teacher, small group leader, I want to challenge you with something. I want you to spend time letting the parents of the kids in your class know the things they do well. Go brag on them. Because you know what? Parents hear all the bad things that their kids did. They don't always hear the good things. And then when the parent brings it up, that child is going to love Sunday school all the more. Because they're going to know you care about them. You you got them brownie points with mom or dad. Because you remembered them. You know, our teacher's compliments in class. I remember my, my daughter, she was falling in love with a certain subject. And I think she wanted to pick her college major based on the affirmation the teacher was giving her. And it got my attention. I thought, wow, if the compliments a high school teacher can pay her over how good she is on a certain subject can sway her lifelong decisions, then her mom and I have to get very involved in those compliments going her way over what she's picking. Do not let some guidance counselor or teacher pick what your son or daughter wants to do when you know your son or daughter better. And you can pick that by confirming with them, praying with them, reading God's word with them and saying, let me see what God has built you to be what he's put into you. And you can affirm and and lead them accordingly. Now, the second part, we went through the ingredients and that's the talk portion. That's the left-hand side, the T-A-L-K. But notice the A portion is the thought bubble. You're not saying this out loud, but you're thinking about it while you're having the conversations with your kids. Now, it is based upon Abraham Lincoln, and the reason why I chose him not only did the acrostic work, but Abraham Lincoln tackled some very tough topics, but he did so with a great tone. You think about it. He preserved the nation through a civil war. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He gave us that very famous speech, the Gettysburg Address. And he's probably least known for, but very powerfully known, for hiring enemies to serve in his cabinet. That's what the book, Team of Rivals, was, was written about. And then the, the movie that was released, I guess, 10 years ago, uh, Daniel day Lewis's book, uh, movie on Lincoln, was him surrounding himself with people who were his adversaries. Can you imagine in our presidential elections today, the people who ran against you vehemently, who said all kinds of ugly things about you, making them your Secretary of State, your Secretary of War, your Secretary of Treasury? That's what Lincoln did. If you're not familiar with it, it's a wonderful story to read. So if it worked with politicians, I think it can work with teenagers. Because I think the first is less mature than the latter. We'll keep going. Okay, I see animation has has, kind of scrambled up where I am here just a little bit here. But we have two keys, and this is intentionality and attitude. Intentionality and attitude. Okay? Now, here's what I want us to talk through. The lost art of table time. Again, our family, very guilty. We're involved in church. We're involved in every extracurricular activity of church. We're also involved in soccer. Our kids were soccer players growing up. And so we're always running to church for an activity. We're always running to soccer practice or to a soccer game. Or we're running to something at school, you know, maybe a sport event that they were playing at school. So we're always in the car. And it seems like we did more dinners through a drive-thru than we did around the dinner table. And here's what the studies have shown, and it's showing at the very bottom of the screen, and this will blow, this will blow you away a little bit. The University of Minnesota, that is not a Christian college. A secular university did a study, and they found out that kids, when they were asked when they were grown, what was the most powerful moments in their family growing up, they did not mention vacations. They did not mention the sporting events. They did not mention any other thing that we talked about as much as they mentioned being at the dinner table with their family as the most shaping moments of their lives. Secular University said that. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm going to challenge you to pick at least one night a week, if not two, or days a week, whether it's Sunday for lunch after church, maybe a Thursday night, a Monday. You figure out what's in your schedule, but try to get your, your whole family around the table. And you play the mad, sad, glad game. You play the high, low game. And you steer those conversations into special moments. And if you can recommend not having electronics at the table, all the better. Okay? And just say, hey, we just, we just want to focus here. We want to enjoy this. Then we get to the B. Your kids are not fully formed in their cognitive brains until age 25. Therefore, you've got to work on those reasoning skills and help them arrive at conclusions. I think we've talked about that already enough. But that takes me to the E. Because your children's brains are not fully formed, therefore they are driven by emotions. And the way I often illustrate this, if you show a four-year-old a nickel or a dime and say, which one do you want? What are they going to say? The nickel. It's bigger. It's shinier. They don't know any better. If they see that as seen on TV, our son was always, dad, we got to buy that. That works so well. They believe everything they saw on TV when they were six, seven, and eight in there. Okay? But here's the bad part. As they get older in the teenage years, they also believe what other other messages are coming their way, such as their negative experiences when they're ridiculed at school, when they're bullied at school, when they've been told they're bad, when they've been told about gender confusion, when they've been talked about body shaming, their views are changing. And they don't need to have gender confusion. They don't need to be shamed. They don't need to be bullied. And it will take you engaging your kids from a biblical point of view to keep them in the right path, going the right way. There's several stories that can show what I'm saying, that emotion can help slant even adults. Wilberforce helped outlaw slavery in England through the use of emotion and showing the slave ships and them unloading. The CBS cameras covering the Selma Bridge crossing began to change America's conscience during the Civil Rights Movement. And if any of you ever traveled to Auschwitz and saw the scratches on the gas chambers and the horrors that will still move you, visuals move our kids, but they also move us." This is the formula, so I'm going to challenge you to look at new norms. Teach the parents. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you're a leader here in the church, teach parents how to play the tennis ball game. And then on a regular basis, ask them how many times this week they played mad, glad, sad, or high-low game. Ask the parents if Abe has helped them connect better. Measure how seniors can adopt younger kids. Some of you in here, your biological kids don't come to this church. But there's some kids in this church that don't have parents leaning into their lives and you can have conversations with them. Some of the kids in this church are coming and while their parents are present, they are spiritually absent and they still need you to lean into their lives. I had a man named Mr. Kennedy. He sat right where Christian is sitting. And when we came out of Sunday school in our church growing up, all the kids flowed down and into the auditorium. And we went up to Mr. Kennedy. And he always reached in his pocket and he pulled out the biggest pack of juicy fruit gum. Now, if I think all the teenagers in here can attest that Juicy fruit's probably the worst gum in the entire world, and it was when I was a child, too. But it was gum, and we loved it because we didn't have anything else. We all went by Mr. Kennedy, said, Hello, Mr. Kennedy. He always talked to us, asked us how we were. We got a piece. We had a rapport with Mr. Kennedy. And he was old. He wasn't related to any of us. But he was everybody's grandfather. We need some Mr. Kennedys in here connecting with teens, connecting with kids, connecting with children. And eventually you can say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? And you'll begin making a relational connection in here. That is where we want to get to. Relationships begin with meaningful conversations. And you can use this formula to do so. I'm going to give you the powerful principles in the message today from Deuteronomy and from Psalms, and we're going to talk through generational discipleship. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time just to just deal with practical. I, I know this was not the, the, the normal study that we get, but Lord, I pray You would use it. I pray, Lord, that as parents and grandparents would use it, teens wouldn't just roll their eyes, even though I know they're going to, but they would recognize that their parents and grandparents are doing it because they care. And I pray, Lord, that starting this, I know, will be so hard, but give these parents and grandparents the urge, the nudge, to just try it and see what a difference it can make. We ask in your Son's name. Amen.